I have a lot of notes here, but don't be concerned. They're size 18 font. <laughs> as I attempt to do this without using my glasses. Oh, oh is right. I may need you to jump in and help me. Um, the glasses are right here, just in case I come against certain words that I just can't read at the wrong time. We don't want that to happen again. So, um, actually, it's clearer from back here. So, <laughs> <laughs> upper age group part two. All right, <laughs> we got the oldies today. All right, why don't we pray? Uh, Father, we uh, we thank you for your grace, your goodness, your kindness towards us, and. Um, Thank you for the privilege of gathering and the church, which is your creation, your idea, and um, is incredible and is actually advancing in the earth, whether it seems like it at times or not. And uh, we're a part of that. And so you have a plan for us and a purpose. And I thank you for every person that's here because you love them, you care for them, and you are deeply invested in their lives. So Jesus, would you speak today in a way that we can all hear? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, really thrilling topic today. I'm going to be talking about contentment and envy. <laughs> so uh, freestyle, uh, you know, the, the seeds of this message on contentment was actually planted as I was reading through my daily uh, Seeing Jesus Together journal. And as I was listening to Tim Keller preach on Proverbs, the envy piece was added. So I think it's a uh, a compliment and hopefully it's helpful helpful for me hopefully it's helpful for all of us so um, I think um, the idea of sharing on contentment probably resonated with me a lot because I spent a lot of my life being discontent and um, you know which is a state of dissatisfaction rather than the state of satisfaction and when we live our lives uh, filled with discontent we're never able to fully enjoy any moment without the seeds of dissatisfaction creeping in and so hear this for what it is um, it's an older man me who's still trying to figure stuff out for sure uh, but who has finally kind of started to draw some conclusions uh, from more than six decades of life experience so let me start off with the passage that I read in the uh, the morning reading I think it's going to come up uh, beside me Paul is referencing in this particular passage the impact of false teachers and that were equating spirituality with wealth. And he concludes his thought with this in quite a, a, a sharp contrast. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 to 10. If you have your Bible, you can open it. If you want to take notes, feel free to do so. Um, but I'll read this now. There was, now, Paul said, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, like into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into, into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. So obviously Paul is obviously highlighting wealth and possessions here as the primary, uh, but discontent is by no means limited to money. Discontentment is part of the human condition. It started in the garden when uh, God told Adam that he could eat, any, uh, eat of any tree uh, except one, but somehow sin-free Adam and Eve were enticed 
into being discontent despite having everything and rather instead of just enjoying everything they chose to uh, take the one forbidden thing so when we look at discontentment uh, there is obviously deep roots and long history and Paul himself at the end of his life um, when he was in prison was able to give us a very high bar for contentment in his famous Philippians verse. And we've probably read this before. If you've been a Christian for a while, you'd be familiar with this. We can look at it, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 to 13. And he says this, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And so... Obviously, we know a little bit about, most of us probably know a little bit about Paul's history. At this point, he's in a prison cell, chained to a guard, writing a letter. And you look at it and you go, prison cell, content? And, you know, I'm going to resist the temptation to simply end the message here at this point by using this as a sledgehammer and saying, wait, you're complaining? You know, he realized Paul was in prison and he was chained to a soldier and he's probably in filthy clothes and everybody had uh, terrible food and everybody deserted him. And, uh, you know, what the heck's wrong with you? There's your frame of reference. So I'm going to resist the temptation to do that because that would be unhelpful and cruel and unusual punishment. So I'm going to leave it at that. But there's the bar that Paul put down for us. It's a pretty high bar, right? It's a pretty high bar. We'll come back to it when I will drop the sledgehammer later on. <laughs> Um, so we can look at three things. We can look at the, uh, the cause of discontentment. We're going to look at the case for discontentment. And we're going to look for, at the cure for discontentment. So coincidentally, they all start with C. I don't know how that even happened. Uh, but I just think that that's kind of what you expect here. So, you know, went with that. So let me, first of all, let me start off by clarifying something. We cannot confuse contentment with being in a rut. So we can't confuse the two. It's not the same thing. The Christian life is one of constant change. And the old expression that God loves us um, despite of who we are, but loves us too much to, lead, to let us stay as who we are, or some version of that, you know, that resonates at this point. It, that's the way God is. He loves us enough to meet us in our sin, but he wants to bring us to a place of intimacy with him, closeness and change. And so contentment can be a real place that you experience, but I'm going to assume that you're on a journey of change. We're all on a journey of change when we talk about contentment. You know, you may tell others that you're fine and content, but you may actually be in a rut. And uh, I have to confess that I occasionally have ruttish tendencies. Um, but I'm married to a rutless one. And so I'm sure you can imagine how that goes at times. So let's talk about the cause of discontent and ultimately we end up talking about contentment. Proverbs 14 verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Gentle, loving, tender passage. Life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Proverbs 23, verse 17 and 18. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. 
So this, this kind of envy theme is very common in, in the scriptures. And, and we want, you know, envy, we can envy people that are not, that are not Christians. Even though we have had this wonderful experience and have a sense of freedom, we can look at people that are outside that are not Christians that are just doing way better in life than us, and we can envy that. And the scripture says, let your, not your heart envy spirit. And that, the key is hard here. Let not your heart envy sinners. Now, all of us are familiar, I'm sure, with the scene of a child kind of happily playing with a toy, and they love it until another child comes by with another toy. I was just in BC with my grandchildren. I watched this firsthand. <laughs> it's just dramatic. It's dramatically sinful and just amazing to watch, you know. And suddenly they forget about their toy and they aggressively steal the other toy with no, like, do you mind if I... No, no. They just take it for themselves. And uh, pretty aggressively. And I, you know, so I observed it. Um, and as we get older, we learn that taking the toy from somebody probably isn't going to end that well. So instead what we do is we simply live out our lives taking the toy in our heart. <laughs> it's like becomes this internal thing. We don't, you know, go obviously grab that new car somebody's got, but we just, we are living our envy out. It's internal at that point. And, um, and so discontentment has its roots and is fueled in many ways by envy. And envy is wanting somebody else's life. That's what envy is. Maybe not all of it, but maybe aspects. That's what it is. We want somebody else's life. Envy resents other people doing well. Envy begrudges other people doing well. Envy is being unhappy at other people's happiness. And when people that are above you fall, you're kind of happy. Like you never say, you never admit it, but there's a part of me like, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm glad that, you know, we kind of getting closer to the same level again now. We, there's something in our hearts that kind of rejoices when that happens. Envy hides itself. You know, I've, I've been listening to some people talk about it. Envy is a pretty hard sin to admit. Because by, by definition, somebody said the stigma of envy is its enormous pettiness. Like, who wants to admit they're envious? I'd probably admit other stuff before I admitted I was envious. It's like, it's like this, it's, it feels petty, it feels immature, it feels like we should all be above that. So it hides itself. If you find yourself constantly negative about a particular person, why? Maybe you're envious of them, and you're doing whatever you can to kind of pull them down in the sight of others, or even in your own eyes. And the saddest part is, we're not only, and somebody wrote this, I'm not saying this, so this is a quote from somebody else. I would never say this, but I'm going to say it. Sadly, we're not only comforted when bad people fail, sometimes we're comforted when good people that we like fail. Sometimes in a kind of a twisted kind of way, part of us inside actually is not totally devastated when somebody that we really like fails. I know it's, it's uh, again, I didn't write that. I would never even think that, but I'm just referencing. So when we look at that, going back to the cause, Proverbs 14, 13, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. You know, I've been kind of out on trails or whatever, and I've seen like dead animals. I mean, 
they're not pretty on the inside. When the bones are rotting and the flesh is gone, and the, I mean, it's not pretty. Often there's maggots, you know, and other, other different things that are happening at the same time. It smells. It's nasty. So he's saying, actually, that's what is happening inside of us when envy is operational. It's rotting us from the inside out. Okay, so that was the, the cause. The second one is the case. And these are what I'm going to give you some examples of the, of the type of things that I think all of us can struggle with. Um, first of all, I'm going to talk about money and stuff. And this is kind of the low-hanging fruit, but I'll read a couple of passages. Hebrews 13, uh, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.10 He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. I think it was uh, Andrew Carnegie, and they said to him, you know, multi-billionaire back in the day, he said, you know, you have so much. You know, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. You know, and that's, I know we look at them, we say, oh, that, that's those guys, but, you know, this is low, the talk about this is pretty low-hanging fruit. All of us probably have read these passages or know uh, these ideas. And I want you to know that this is not just a kind of a Western sickness. You know, being discontent with money and stuff uh, is just as prevalent and applicable in name your impoverished country here and as it is in affluent North America or Europe. It's just the scale that's different. You ever hear those stories of the homeless guy and they stab another homeless guy because he had a better sleeping bag? And you go, wow, that's so crazy. But that's envy. That's it being played out in real time in a situation that we maybe would, wouldn't consider as envy. So let me talk a bit about this kind of journey here. When we're young and we're starting out in life, um, we have a huge wish list. You know, I, I, I'm... I've seen my kids with, with young children, and it's like, first of all, I don't even know how we did it. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. I mean, I look at it and just go, wow, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing when you see young families with young children. Babies are expensive. You know, and so a lot of what I'm saying now is it's actually need, not greed. But it doesn't really matter what stage of life that we find ourselves in. The marketing world does just a magnificent job of making us discontent with what we have. There's guys sitting around saying, how can we make that person want what we have? Well, obviously we have to make them not like what they currently have and show them how much better this is so they can be miserable enough to actually go ahead and buy our product. So, you know, that, I mean, your stroller is okay. You know, but have you seen this stroller? <laughs> Do you know how expensive strollers are? Who's, like, if you're out of the kid thing, like the baby thing, it's shocking. Who, who's, who knows, like, younger, the stroller world, price, you know? You can spend $2,000 plus on a stroller. Yeah, you can. And there's a black market in strollers. You can't leave them <laughs> hanging around. Someone will steal your stroller, and it'll be on Kijiji in 10 minutes, and it'll be gone before you can even report it to the police. We had a friend in BC who, was, uh, who turned his back and his stroller was, uh, stroller was stolen and jumped in his car and he found this homeless guy pushing his stroller with his beer ca case and he goes, what are you doing? Give him a stroller. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, man, I made a mistake. <laughs> like, all right. 
So that's some mistake. Irrelevant to this conversation, just uh, came to mind. So over the years, I think, at every stage in life, I personally have experienced uh, large levels of discontentment when it comes to the area of finances. I uh, always worked hard, uh, seen people maybe do better than myself or whatever the case may be, and wondered, you know, how come they can do this or how come they have that gift? And it's been something where I've, 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 had, I've had to struggle with it and struggle through it. Um, but there is kind of, a, I think, there has been some growth in my life, in our lives, in that area. Um, of course, you say that and go, well, I probably shouldn't even say this. I mean, this is probably going to come back and bite me. But as of this second in history, <laughs> not talking about tomorrow, as of this second in history, there's been some growth. And, and granted, it is stage of life as well, so I do recognize that um, and place in life. But I think um, us and others that we've talked to have really not have any desire to accumulate more and more stuff. That desire has just gone. In fact, we're kind of more at the, 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 the stage of simplifying life, divesting uh, of things. Um, we're probably not hungrily devouring online shopping channels or dreaming of the next big purchase because that's, that could easily come back and buy me. But I do think we're kind of intentional about being content in that area. You know, I'm, as you know, I'm, my primary hobby is fly fishing. And it's an expensive world, it can be. And, um, you know, I, I would be watching for the next best fly rod that was coming up, and then I would just figure out how to get it. And I just find myself at this point, like, being actually content. You know, I know, I know Jesus, I am, I promise. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just think that, uh, that I found some peace at this point in the area of that. Um, I think we have as a, as a couple. But again, I, I, I do feel that at every stage in life, we have to be very cautious that we free ourselves from the love of money. And how do we stay content at these really high-pressure, high-need chapters in our lives and, and segments of our lives? Um, so that was the, the, the low-hanging fruit, the money thing. The second one is life circumstances. Um, and I think that we'll, we'll revisit Paul's exhortations and, and really draw courage from it at this point. I hope you will throw Philippians 4.11 back up again. Let's read it again one more time. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing of Facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. All right. So that is a high bar. But the reality is it's hard to be content when life's not going well. It's difficult. I mean, it was going really badly for Paul. <laughs> so that's the high bar. I mean, badly from our perspective. But not badly because of the fact that he actually preached the gospel to these Roman soldiers who then took the gospel into their communities. And that was how the gospel was spread when he was in prison. He had a captive audience chained to him and a different guy every 24 hours. And every guy was chained to him. What is he, what's he going to talk about? The gospel. And these guys went back and shared the gospel with their compatriots and with their friends. And the gospel spread while Paul was in prison. So for us, hard really difficult chapter in his life for Paul 
that was what he was living. I've learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. But when life's not going well, for example, you know, how can we be content when we're single, we're dreaming of marriage, and we can't seem to meet the right person, uh, especially when others around us are getting rings? That's tough. We, we walk through with people all the time. And I can't say I know how you feel, because I don't. I've been married forever. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's a hard thing for people to go through. And hard to be content when you're looking at others that are the place where you really desire to be. Maybe we're struggling in relationships, whether that be with your spouse or siblings or business associates, church family members or whatever. Or, or maybe we or somebody close to us got a bad health diagnosis or we lose a job, we're overlooked for a promotion um, or our kids keep making bad choices and it costs them and us. I mean, it's hard to be content when we have to deal with those situations in our lives. And it's hard to not let envy creep in when, uh, when we're discontent because these things are right in our face. Or even shallow stuff like comparing your physique with others or your golf game to a buddy's or how many fish others catch. I don't know who that would be. <laughs> or or you know, your friend's new house and car. You know, it's tough to be content when others seem to be doing better than you and you're living the comparison game. I just made a decision. I'm just going to stop comparing myself to 35-year-old triathletes. It's simple. It's pointless. <laughs> I'm never going to be that guy. I'm good. <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards, famous theologian, said this. He said, never underestimate the power, the spiritual power of envy. Not just the power, but the spiritual power of envy. Somebody else said this, Learn what you envy and you will know who you are. You envy people that have the thing that you use to justify yourself. So if you are wrapping your identity up in something and you see somebody else that has that thing and you don't have it, you will be envious of them. And so that is the challenge, is that how can we actually look at other people that have what we want and celebrate rather than be envious of them? So whatever, in whatever way we seek to be justified, what is the thing? Do you want to be known as the best musician or the best fisherman or the best sales guy or the best golfer? You know, or the best person who's traveling to Canal? Is that what you want? So it's, you know, whatever we're wrapping our identity up in, when we see somebody else that is better than us in that scenario, it's very hard for envy not to jump in. Keller said this himself. He said, if it's not God that convinces you that you are not a bum, if it's something else, you are going to be drained by envy all of your life. You want me to read that again? Yeah. If it's not God that convinces you that you are not a bum, if it's something else, you are going to be drained by envy all your life. So if you want to be justified by this thing and you are constantly failing at it and somebody else is doing better, you will be drained by envy all of your life. However, if you have accepted 
God's favor and blessing and smile on your life, regardless of whether or not you ever become that thing, envy has no gate to come in. Clear? Okay. Finally, we'll go to the cure. I'm going to give you kind of two, two cures, I think, that are really real ways that we can actually deal with this issue. First of all, this uh, thing that Jonathan Edwards spoke about, the spiritual power of envy, needs to be confronted by an authentic, greater spiritual experience. So I'm going to read another Keller quote here. As Keller said, Go to the most unenvious person in the history of the world. Unless he, Jesus, is my portion, unless he, Jesus, captures my imagination, envy will rule. So it's that whole kind of idea of, I have to love Jesus more than I love that thing. That's really the summary of what he's saying at this point. And how do we get to that point? I know it's, it's very easy for me to say this, but I know it's a battle to, to, to walk through a, a, that type of scenario or a journey like that. It starts with straight talk. Psalm, um, Psalm 142, verse 2. He says, I poured out, or I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. So the idea is that Jesus is not intimidated by your journey or your battles. And if you're going to have an honest one-on-one, he's the first person you need to talk to about this. Pour out you know, your complaint before him. Tell your trouble before him. That is that, you know, that place of, of, of straight talk. Nobody around you. It's not something you do with your spouse. This is you alone, wherever you want to be. Talk to God, pour it out. Whatever that thing is that is heaviest in your life, which is causing the great discontentment, pour it out to Him and, uh, and meet Him in that way. So it starts with straight talk and it ends with worship. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So it starts with straight talk and ends with worship. And that, you know, the idea of becoming captivated with Jesus is something we're all, we're all journeying to. When we get together like this and we sing in the beginning, as we sang, Holy, 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 I said, Oh no, of all the songs to sing. I hope I can keep myself together, you know, singing that song now having to come and share because when I re, you know, sing holy, 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 I am fa- captivated by Jesus again. You know, it's a beautiful song and sung together rather than me just listening to it in my car is very different. The dynamics of hearing other voices and all of us pushing through is a very different experience than me just listening to it by myself. So that's the first thing, is um, the straight talk. Secondly, um, straight talk worship. Secondly, and this is very doable and is very powerful, live a life of thanksgiving. Live a life of thanksgiving. Thankfulness leads to contentment. Full stop. Full stop. When our lives are not perfect... And we turn around and say, and maybe you can throw this up, Psalm 16, verse 6. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When we can say that, we're starting to exhibit thankfulness because we know there's a bigger picture that our life is framed in. And so I'm sure the psalmist, everything wasn't perfect, but for the psalmist to be able to say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There is a heart of thankfulness at that point where he is looking at what he has, acknowledging it for what it is, but also going big picture here. We have a beautiful inheritance. And so we need to find ways in the midst of our mess to be thankful. And there is, you know, even in your mess, you can be thankful. I mean, I remember chatting with Dean as he went through his journeys and hearing him be thankful about things. Or we all know people that are going through battles. You know, and there are still things that we can be thankful for. And finding that is a discipline. And... Um, you know, the scriptures, I'll give you three scriptures. You may have heard it. You're going to hear it again. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks always and for everything. So there's no time when we shouldn't be thankful according to this passage. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So waking up in the morning and immediately leaning into thankfulness is so countercultural, is so counterintuitive of times, but is so powerful and it's so life-shaping. The discipline of looking for reasons to be thankful instead of looking for reasons to be discontent is countercultural. The world is telling us, you will never be happy. You will never be happy unless you have this. Then you get that. And then you'll never be happy till you get this. And you get that. You'll never be happy till you get this. And you get that. And then you realize, oh, oh there's a, I'm on that wheel thing. I'm chasing my tail here. Some of us spend our entire lives and never realize we're on the wheel. All right, we're done. So we know the cause of discontentment. My question to all of us today is, <clears throat> will we thrust a spear to the heart of envy? Will we challenge it? Will we not let it hide in our lives? Will, it, will we identify it? And will we put a spear through it? Will we challenge it in our lives? That's my first question. The second question, um, we all have cases for discontent will we intentionally celebrate those that have what we want you know I've realized over the years 
that people that are envious and discontent have a hard time praising people that are further ahead than them in the area, specifically in the area where you want to be successful. I would say it's a great discipline as a lifestyle to praise people that are doing well. Man, so happy for you. If you don't feel it, even if you don't feel it, I mean, try and feel it. But if you don't, try the dis start that discipline. I find that in doing that, I free myself up from those kind of dark heart thoughts that I'm, I'm battling. And after a while, when we do that, we, we genuinely do start to celebrate people that are doing well. You know? What's the book? The free, oh, this is a must-read book. Sorry, another Tim Keller quote. Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And uh, it's a short read. You can pick it up online. It's like 50 pages. It is one of the most convicting and compelling books I've ever read. And, you know, he talks about the fact that, you know, the skater who wants to do the triple sauerkraut, whatever that thing is. Is that sauerkraut? Is that, is, that like, is that what you put on a sausage? A sauerkraut, right? Anyway, similar. The triple sauerkraut or whatever, whatever that's called. You know, the skater that doesn't, that keeps trying it and fails. But then the person that comes up and, and, uh, after them and is able to actually land this thing. Can we celebrate the landing of this thing because of the beauty of that? Because it's such an incredible accomplishment without feeling like we're less or we've lost something because they did it. Can we do that? You know, can we celebrate people in the chapters of their lives where things are going well, when our life is going terribly? Can we still do that? That, I think, is um, a way that we flush out discontent from our lives. And the final one is we see the cure for discontent Will we practice a life of thanksgiving as we run to the most unenvious person who ever lived? Will we do that? Will we practice a life of thanksgiving as we run to the most unenvious person who ever lived?